Hello and welcome to the Leaders with Ambition podcast series, the podcast that delves deep into the careers of some of the most successful leaders working in professional services firms across the UK, US and internationally. We aim to discover the secrets behind their success, the challenges they have overcome and to find out what traits make a successful leader. Hello and welcome to the latest in the Leaders with Ambition podcast series. And today I'm absolutely delighted to welcome my guest, Kevin Hogarth. Now, Kevin has had an illustrious career as a CPO um, over many years in some of the world's largest professional services and financial services firms. And more recently, he's pivoted in his career into mentorship, NED roles, and also real advocates for some charity work and also for some EDI specialist work as well. Picked up some NED roles along the way, so lots of things for us to discuss today. Kevin was also named by HR Magazine um, one of the most influential practitioners in 2022. So, congratulations for that, Kevin. And he's been actively involved in EDI since very early on in his career, which again is something that I'd really like us to explore today. It's, it's something that I know he's very passionate about, which I think goes back to his childhood and upbringing in the, the Northeast and this real belief that was instilled in him from his family around fairness and social conscience, which, again, I think has really resonated throughout his career. So without further ado, Kevin, over to you to bring your career history to life for us. Great. Thank you very uh, much, uh, Nikki. Thank you for the invitation to join you and for those very, very uh, kind uh, comments. Uh, well, the first thing I would say is I think I've been incredibly fortunate. I've had a fabulous career. Uh, you know, I have enjoyed virtually everything that I have done in my career, and there aren't very many people, I think, who can say that. So I feel very privileged uh, to have had uh, such a great career and uh, to have fallen into something out of university that I really enjoyed uh, yeah. and also you know, found that actually I was quite good at. And I know that you know, many people you know, can take a few years to find their sort of career path, you know, what it is that they really enjoy and, and I feel very fortunate that uh, you know I came to the world of HR quite young quite early straight as a fresh-faced uh, uh, graduate and have enjoyed you know a long a long career working with some amazing people absolutely you know feel very privileged to, to have had that. So when you were growing up then Kevin in Whitley Bay what did you always think this is it this is, I'm going to build this career in not necessarily HR, as you say, you fell into that a little bit, but was it always something that you were focused on and wanted to achieve? What what happened? No, I don't think so. I mean, I'm not sure that uh, as a young kid, many kids know what HR is, uh, is, <laughs> is about. You know, my dad, my dad was a civil engineer. My mother was a librarian. I had a, a pretty nice middle class uh, upbringing, uh, went to local state uh, schools. But um, I always, from quite a young age, you mentioned it, so from somewhere came this sense of the world being an unfair place and uh, wanting to do something to make it fairer. And I had a, at quite a young age, I uh, developed an interest in politics, for example. I wasn't exactly a geeky child because, you know, I played, you know, I played a lot of sports. I was always outside. I had a very outdoorsy sort of up- upbringing, always on the beach or out in the, out in the hills in the in Northumberland, I did get interested in politics. And I came to realise that actually the politics I was most drawn to were the politics that were talking about 
trying to create a fairer uh, and more equal world. And as I grew up, I realised that you know, there was this thing called social conscience and uh, about if you are, as I thought I was, somebody who was pretty fortunate in, in life, that um, people like me had a responsibility to try and support those that were less fortunate uh, in life. And I think that probably has you know, sort of been something that's been reflected through my career. Uh, and when I look back now, I'm not sure I always thought about it this way, but when I look back now, I do think about my career as about being creating fairer workplaces, you know, where people can thrive, they can make the most of their abilities, regardless of who they are and their background. So, you know, my interest in HR, you know, came later in life, but I always was interested in, in this concept of how I could make a difference to the world and make the world a fairer place. Which is, again, at a young age, quite unusual, unusual yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I guess I got some of that from my family. I, mean, I wouldn't say my family were, you know, uh, particularly political. I mean, it wasn't like we sat around the, we sat around the dinner table having political conversations every night, uh, like some political families. You know, my parents were never involved in politics or anything, anything like that. But I think they, that was their view of the world yeah. as well. My grandparents on my mother's side, you know, certainly you know, weren't very well off, and um, I think that probably also shaped my view, seeing what their life had been. Uh, have been like uh, you know pretty tough um, uh, life for them without without very much money and my mother's upbringing uh, was uh, you know influenced by but so I'm sure that shapes some of my thinking but you know I have to say again I wouldn't want to create this picture that uh, that's what my childhood was, was all was all about because as I say I was playing lots of sports very outdoors uh, lifestyle and uh, you know very very happy childhood growing up in the northeast and then we moved uh, then we moved with my dad's job uh, to the East Midlands to Nottingham where I had my secondary school education again, continued, you know, very sporty, involved in lots of things at school. And I did play lots and lots of sports. But the one uh, that I sort of um, excelled at was probably, uh, was badminton. And uh, I got to quite a good standard in that. I played for the, for the county and my dear poor old dad had to drive me. And my brother, who was also a very good badminton player, uh, who's two years younger than me, uh, he ended up driving us all around the country on uh, weekends to play uh, in county matches as you know Nottinghamshire versus Yorkshire and Nottinghamshire versus Staffordshire or, 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 or wherever. And, and sport has always been you know a very central part of my uh, part of my life. My dad was a was a very good footballer. Uh, my mother was very sporty. She played tennis and uh, she played netball. So yeah, that's always been a part of my life as well. Which I think is interesting. So, you know, you look at your coaching element now, which I know that you're heavily involved in. I think one of the things you mentioned to me was that when you were at university and you were coaching uh, badminton, that actually the skill set that you learned there is is seen you through quite a lot of your career, hasn't it? Well, yeah, it, it, it's strange, isn't it? Because I saw this advertisement when in my this is my first first Christmas break at university, and so I was playing for the university team at badminton. I saw at the sports centre an advertisement for courses to qualify as a badminton coach and I thought oh I could I, I, I quite I quite fancied that I, I'd uh, sort of helped a bit uh, when I was sort of getting older at school in the in the school badminton club uh, you know with the young kids there so I had a little bit of exposure to it but I thought yeah I, I think I quite fancy doing that and so I did do my coach uh, qualifications and so you know I was a, a coach you know at 18 years old uh, which is quite quite young to be a qualified sports uh, coach but when I think back I think a lot of the principles that I learned there then around how to coach people to play a sport mm-hmm. have definitely influenced the way that I I think about coaching and developing people and helping them make the most of the ability that they that they have yeah you know, through the rest of my career and you know if you read uh, you know, many of the coaching uh, books, um, a, a lot of what they 
reflect in those books is you know based on sports coaching and sport and, and, and sports psychology and things like that so uh, you know that's where I think some of my interest in that that came from and then you know, I did I did a politics degree um, unsurprisingly given my interest in, uh, in 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 politics but um, as I was thinking about what sort of job I wanted to do I was very I was very people orientated but I was also very interested um, because of the, the, the time that this was this was a time when uh, Margaret Thatcher was reforming the trade unions and um, I realized that the Part of an organisation that dealt with trade unions was uh, was the personnel department, as it was called uh, then. And so, as I as I finished my studies and I started applying for jobs, that's what I did. I had a, had a bit of an argument with my dad about whether or not I was going to go travelling or not. He wasn't very keen on that that idea, having paid for me to go through uh, university. <laughs> he, said, uh, <laughs> uh, he, he thought I'd better go out there and uh, and earn a, earn a living. So. I did a deal with him that I, I would I would accept a job if I got offered one, but you know wouldn't just keep on going uh, if I didn't get one from the Milkround. And I did. I got offered a job in the personnel department, in the training department, actually uh, at um, at Boots at their head office in, which is in Nottingham again. Yeah, yeah it's uh, really fascinating yeah. with uh, the connection with Nottingham, which I know will continue throughout your story as well, doesn't it? it well, it does. Having having moved there with my dad's my dad's job and you know secondary school education, I didn't. I wasn't particularly looking to go back to Nottingham, um, but that's the only place I got. Um, I yeah, was offered a offered a job, so I did go back there and spent five you know great years there. You know, I'm very grateful to Boots for the uh, sort of foundational experience that I've got. I had some great managers, you know, when I think back to the, the managers that I had in those early stages of my career, again, I feel very fortunate for the care and the attention that they took to my development, giving me new opportunities. I mean, I was a bit of a an agitator, you know, for new opportunities. You know, I'd be doing something for 18 months and I'd be going, right, okay, you know, what's 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 next? I want to do something uh, because I was, I was ambitious. I did want to get on. But that ambition, somebody once said to me, oh, you're very competitive, uh, Kevin. And I, and I certainly was competitive when I was playing sports. But I never really thought of myself as competitive at work because I want, want everybody to be successful at work. And certainly I kind of thought that this you know, description of me as competitive was that you know, I wanted to win at the expense of other people. That was, that was never the, the, the case. I very much wanted you know, everybody in the team to succeed, you know, the organisation to uh, succeed. But yes, I was ambitious. I did want to become more senior. I saw that the way that you, you know, influenced what was going on in an organisation was by getting into more senior jobs. And I think that that, that is what was driving me. I, I did want to influence what happened and be involved in the decisions about what was what was going on. And, you know, if you wanted to do that, you had to get into the manager's jobs and the senior manager's jobs and, and so on. And so I got a few promotions at Boots. Eventually, I got a recruitment and development manager job. I had a team of about five. My first sort of experience of managing a, a proper team, and I really enjoyed managing people. And I know some people find you know that they don't really enjoy that, but I did. I, I really enjoyed the opportunity to sort of work on motivating people, uh, helping them solve problems, think about what it was that we were trying to do as a team, uh, build a team spirit. All of all of that was stuff that actually. I really enjoyed and, and and that has been a feature ever since that I've actually really enjoyed being a leader of of, of people it's been a alongside the the satisfaction that I get uh, I, I've had from my professional work as, yeah. as an HR professional 
Um, just the that bit about being a leader of uh, of teams has also been has been very very satisfying. And how important you mentioned there, you know, that every year, eighteen months, you'd be saying, "What's next? What's next?" How important is that? Because you know, the, there's a, a there's a two way thought process, isn't there? One is, you know, you will do your job and things come to you, and the other is, you go out there and ask for it because no one's going to give you anything unless you do. So where do you sit in there? You've got to avoid making yourself a, um, a, a pain in the butt um, by <laughs> constantly going on about it. And you do have to sort of match what you're asking for with delivering results. So you, you have to uh, know that you're sort of getting to grips with what you're doing and you're doing that job quite well, you know, before, you know, so going and asking for the, the next thing. But I do think you need to go and ask. And do you think um, that... Um, you want to progress in your career you need to make it clear what what it is that you're looking for what type of experiences you want and certainly I wasn't shy in doing that but that was probably a a product of having I think some really good managers in those early years I felt very comfortable talking to them about that Um, and they encouraged me to talk about that and so again I think that's something that I've always adopted in my conversations with people, I've never got upset when people have started to tell me that they think they're outgrowing the job or they're outgrowing the organisation and they're thinking about making a move. I'd, I'd much prefer to have that discussion uh, with them. One, because it may well be that actually there is something I can do to create an opportunity for them within the organisation that maybe from their vantage point they, they can't see, but I can. But equally, if it's the right thing for them to do to move on, then ultimately I would, uh, I would you know, want to help them in doing that. I know it's one of the things uh, that you say, it's one of the highlights of your career, isn't it? It's being able to see people progressing, developing and stepping on to create these stellar careers. Absolutely. When I think back at some of the most satisfying periods of my, it has been when I've you know had a great team of people who are all chomping in a bit, to do more yeah. things, you know, and to get on and progress. And now when I look back and I think about contributions I've made in creating opportunities for people who've gone on to have great careers themselves, that's one of the most hugely satisfying aspects of my career. More satisfying than I put in place a great succession planning process at this organisation. It's the fact that I now look at some people and, and the positions that they're in and think, well, I think I did play a, a part in helping develop them into a position where they could go on and do those sorts of uh, do those sorts of roles and development I know is important to you personally as well as for your teams and you got headhunted uh, towards the end of your time at Boots didn't you and were offered I, an opportunity to yes I did and it was, this is a bit unusual getting headhunted uh, so I don't quite know how that happened but anyway I did I got, I got a phone, I got a phone call <laughs> and um, I had no idea how they knew who I was but I'd always again thought that I wanted to, in the early stage of my career to get different experiences and so you know it was a bit of a pattern emerging as I talked to you Nikki Ren. I was thoughtful about my career you know, I was thoughtful about what experiences I needed within Boots and then I was thoughtful about what I needed how long I wanted to stay with Boots and and then about what I wanted to do afterwards and I knew I wanted to go and do something different I wanted to go and work in a different sector and I think very fortunate being in HR and the HR skills are quite portable in that you, particularly earlier on in your career, it's much easier to move sectors, function like HR than it is in some other, some other areas. And so, yes, it was uh, financial services. It was a really exciting time in financial services um, uh, with, uh, you know, a lot of reforms, uh, deregulation of, of uh, financial institutions. And I joined a, a building society, the largest building society at the time called National 
and provincial who were saying that they were going to follow Abbey National and they were going to demutualize and become a, a PLC. That sounded interesting to be part of all of the change that went on. When I arrived, within a few months, it became apparent that actually the market conditions weren't really going to uh, allow that. And the chief executive left. You know, that was you know, his strategy. And as is so often the case when one strategy fails, the chief executive uh, leaves. So a new chief executive came in and it made a huge difference to the organisation. He wasn't from financial services. He was actually um, a chief executive at Rank Xerox. And he brought with him a lot of management, uh, Japanese management thinking, which was very much in vogue at that uh, time. This was the, you know, the late the late 80s. Um, so things like quality circles and approach to continuous improvement and process management and you know, this was stuff I never, never, ever encountered. Uh, and um, uh, that was certainly one of the periods of my career where I think I learned most and learned really quickly from uh, the, the new people that were coming into the organisation. David brought uh, a number of, of people in to help him change the, uh, the, the organisation. I was surrounded by some really very talented HR um, uh, people. And again, because of a reorganization, I got a, another great opportunity to uh, become the uh, head of HR for the branch network, which was the sort of biggest operational job in the in the in the building society. And it was the one that I had wanted when I knew this reorganization was was coming up. I was perhaps a little bit surprised to get it. But and I would I would say it, 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 it's an example of learning a lot, but learning a lot because I wasn't very good. It was a, a, it was, learn, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty painful first year in that uh, in that role because I probably was a bit inexperienced, a bit naive, and so I learned very quickly. And you know, uh, you know, quite a few, uh, quite a few battle scars from things that didn't go very well in my in my first uh, year. And I remember my boss saying to me, "Well, you know, the chief executive has told me I should be moving you on, but I, you know, I told him I think you've got potential. I want to give you give you a chance." So. That really made me determined to make a go of it, and and uh, yeah, I did manage to turn it around, and I ended up staying at uh, the building society for about uh, eight uh, years. Um, the irony is, we were eventually acquired by uh, Abbey National, uh, whose sort of strategy we were going to follow. Uh, they came and acquired they came and acquired us, and so I moved across to uh, to Abbey National, but didn't for the first time in my career, I didn't really enjoy what I was doing. That was a very new experience uh, for me. And that was predominantly because of the culture. Again, uh, national, provincial NMP had been a, a very progressive HR um, environment with new uh, approaches to people management. And I felt as I was taking a step back and doing some very, very traditional type of personnel management stuff with Abbey National. So I thought I probably do need to, to move on from here and to take what I learned at NMP and to apply that into you know, other organisations and that's when, again, um, I was approached uh, for a job at Ernst Young, or EY as they're known these days. And that was my sort of first foray into professional services, which obviously was then going to become a bit of a feature of you know, the, the next phase of my, uh, of my career. And again, you know, I was thinking, well, it's very different business to business rather than business to consumer. Uh, it's a professional partnership. I've never worked in an environment like, uh, like that. And so I was attracted again by the fact that I'd be learning about a different sector. And I felt also, given what I was hearing about EY through the interviews, that this was an organisation that wanted to raise its game on HR. And I thought, you know, I can bring the experience that I got from the Building Society into EY. 
But I do love how you're carefully thinking and planning. You know, you're, you're trying to, to ensure that you have maximum exposure to all different kinds of businesses and you're making you know, decisions based on that as well. And also looking at how can I help take this business forward? It's not just about you adapting and developing your own skill set. So you walked into EY and I would imagine then it wasn't as advanced as some of the HR work that you've been doing previously. No, no it wasn't. I mean, I, I think um, the professional services at that, at, at that, at that time I hadn't really got to grips with what good HR looks like. I think they're very different uh, today than they than they were. Great opportunity for you, if you say that, with all your knowledge and skills. Yeah, and, and that was part of the attraction, was you know, to yeah. be able to put some of that into practice. But I, again, I um, having struggled at the start of my time when I got the head of HR role for the branch network at NMP, I struggled when I joined the, uh, a professional services firm because of how different it is working in a professional partnership than working in a corporate and I really didn't give that enough thought about how different it was going to it was going to be and I'd probably been there about a year when one of the office managing partners took me to one side and gave me some feedback and he was pretty much saying I don't think it's going very well Kevin but again a bit like my boss at NMP said I, you know, I think you've got more to offer and he spent time really talking to me about how to be successful in a professional services firm and the differences between a partnership and a corporate and the need to engage in the wider partnership and not just rely on the formal management structures to try and influence things and it was a you know it was a not quite a light bulb moment but it certainly made me think differently about the way that I was operating in the in the firm and you know there must have been something there because I spent quite a subsequently spent quite a lot of my career in professional services firms and you know started to really enjoy Really enjoy it and the engagement with uh, with the with the broader the broader uh, partnership. And again, you you know, it's interesting with that mentorship coaching. Again, you're you're receiving direct mentorship from a very mm. senior person as well, which is can be more unusual. And yet, you pay that forward with your teams as well. Is it learned behaviour, or is it the fact that you're so open and you're know, ready to absorb that has allowed that to happen? Uh, well, I think it's a bit a, a bit of both. I've always been somebody who has found it quite easy to take um, feedback and listen to to feedback i don't get very defensive i've always thought it's coming from a good place you know not everybody's very skilled in giving the feedback so some of it sort of lands a bit more harshly than than other feedback but if you think about the intent behind it then i've always thought these people are trying to try to help me uh, and so you know, listen to what it is that they're that they're saying don't be pig-headed and stubborn and think that you know you know the right way especially with People like this office managing partner who had you know, 20 years more experience than um, uh, than me and had lived his entire professional life in partnerships and I'd had 12 months and so it would have been foolish not to <laughs> you know, not to listen to what the advice that uh, he had to uh, to give. But I guess I do think that because I've been fortunate in having people like that in my career who have helped guide me, uh, offer me development opportunities. They were my role models. They were the people who I looked at and thought, well, I really admire them. I'm really grateful to them for the help and the support that they provided. Uh, and so I guess I incorporated some of that into the way that, that, that I was looking to manage and lead my teams as well. Yeah. Did you have formal training in management as well? Was that something that was part of the way that you were developed? 
that is one of the you know, great foundational things at Boots. I had loads of management training at Boots, from virtually from the minute I walked through the the door. You know about the fundamentals of you know management. In those days, they didn't talk so much about leadership. They talked about management mainly, uh, but um, about the principles of how to be a good manager, how to manage people, how to deal with challenging situations, how to manage my own time, how to plan. All of those fundamental business skills, and I got a lot of training in those first five years at, um, at Boots. Uh, that then definitely continued at the Building Society. I got more training there. So I felt those early years of my career, again, lots of really foundational stuff. I learned lots of really foundational stuff that served me pretty well through the rest of my career. Yeah, it's those building blocks, isn't it? I think often now you see people go into management roles because they're good at their jobs. Yes. Um, make you a good leader or a good manager, does it? You know, you do, it's a different kind of skill set that you need. So it's interesting. Yes. yes. I mean, I, and I think that's perhaps a difference between corporates and professional services firms. You know, in professional services, definitely you're getting promoted because of your technical competence. Yeah. You're a great lawyer, you're a great accountant, you're a great uh, you know, tax advisor or whatever it is, and you're getting uh, you're progressing as a, as a result of that in a corporate you know from quite an early age you, when you start to manage people then a fundamental part of what you're being praised on is how well you're managing your team and you know that was very evident to me you know when I started managing people that that was going to be part of my performance objectives what I would be evaluated on and so I needed to be good at that and I needed to invest time in you know, building my skills and learning how to be a better manager of um, people and that's that's not always the case in I think in professional services where perhaps that side of the role is not valued to the same extent as the, as the technical skills. Very, very true and you were doing incredibly well at EY and then you decided it was time to move again because it was business as usual and Kevin doesn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I think the other the other thing that that happened at, at EY was I started to get a little taste of international work. Right. So EY UK, obviously part of the kind of broader global EY uh, family, the UK firm, the second largest firm in in the EY global global network. And so whenever there were global meetings, um, uh, you know, obviously the UK was attending them. So I was attending, starting to attend global uh, meetings and thinking this is quite interesting, and it's quite interesting kind of getting to grips with the way things are done differently in Germany and France or you know the United States or or wherever and I thought I would like a bit more of that um and uh, an opportunity came up at, at, at Capital One to be the international recruitment director at a time when Capital One were had uh, very expansive international uh, plans and so I thought that was part of the attraction, but also it was a very different type of um, organization to the ones that I previously worked for, where they all had a sort of a hundred year plus legacy. Yeah. Capital One had a few years of a legacy because I joined in 2001 and they'd only really been in the UK since 97, but IPO'd in the US in 96. And so it was a very dynamic entrepreneurial organization that was growing very, very quickly where we were putting policies in place for the first time. It wasn't the case of, well, we need to change that policy. It was, well, we need a policy. Uh, we, need a process, we need a process. And also, it was uh, an organisation that valued people and wanted to be really exceptional at the, uh, you know, in terms of its culture uh, and the way in which people uh, were managed and, and, uh, and, uh, and developed. So when they were looking to develop something, they would go and look at the world's great corporations they go and look at GE they go and look at Ford they go and look at organizations who had a reputation of being 
best in class in people management and then try and synthesize what they had done to apply it into into capital one and you know i'd say again that was a period of really quite intense professional development for me in learning about what really great hr looks like and i think a lot of my career since has been you know even though that's getting to be quite a long time ago now it's 20 20 years ago that i was at uh, capital one much of what i learned there still does influence and has influenced you know my thinking about the way i wanted to go about running HR teams in the organizations that I went into subsequently. I loved Capital One. I got a great, um, I got a, sort of got a promotion there to be the European HR director, team of about 50 people. I really, really loved it. It was fantastic mm-hmm. culture, great people, great, great colleagues. And I'm still you know, firm friends with many of the people that I worked uh, with uh, there. But this organization that was growing incredibly quickly you know, things changed. And uh, Capital One uh, is a subprime lender. And the winds of the sort of the, 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 uh, the winds of the global financial crisis were first felt in the subprime market in the United States. And Capital One started to retrench, then had a change of strategy and were investing very heavily in building a branch network in the United States. And so there was less investment for the international uh, businesses. And we went through in the UK, we went through a very, very significant business transformation program we outsourced large parts of the of the operation and reduced the headcount quite dramatically to the point really where you know they didn't really need people like me and some of my other executive colleagues um, at that level of seniority running running the business so I agreed that I would see through the business transformation and then I would move on and, and look for another uh, opportunity and well, again, Just a really a, interesting period of time there, Kevin. You know, you're going through that, as you say, this business transformation in during a GFC, which was, you know, up until COVID, one of the, you know, the most extreme periods of time that, that we've seen yes. in life. So, again, you're yes. learning all the time, aren't you? Oh, no, absolutely, because you, you know, you've gone from, you know, being in an organisation that's, that's growing very quickly to in a very entrepreneurial phase of its development to one that then had to mature very quickly. The regulators started taking a great interest in in the organization because it had become such a size and you know, many of the internal processes and policies weren't really quite robust enough for an organization yeah. of the scale that Capital One had become. So we had to become a bit more internally focused rather than ex- externally focused for a period of time. Then we go through into, into the period leading up into the global financial crisis of you know, kind of this, this, this business transformation. So yeah, there were several. One of the interesting things there is there was I went through several iterations of the management team of the executive team. The executive team that I, when I had joined the business, you know, it was a very very different executive team to the team later on in my time yeah. with the uh, with the firm, which sort of reflected the different skills that were needed as the as, a, as the needs of the business were uh, were changing. As the HR person, you know, I was centrally involved in working with the you know, the three or four CEOs that I worked. Uh, with during that time in reshaping those executive teams. So again, fantastic experience and learning uh, an enormous amount. But I think uh, when I was thinking about what do I want to do next after Capital One, I, I had enjoyed it so much that I thought it's going to be very hard to replicate this. And so you know, when opportunities came up to go and talk to other financial services organisations, I, I, I thought, I, I'm not sure that I want to do that um, because I'm, you know it'll be more of this more of the same, but probably not quite as good. And so I was looking I was looking for a fresh challenge. I was looking for somewhere where I thought I could take what I'd, what I'd learned to Capital One and, and, and apply that. And that's when the Freshfields job 
came up. And you know, my former colleagues at Freshfields would be horrified to know I didn't I hadn't even heard of who Freshfields were. I, I'd, I'd, I'd heard of Slaughter and May, and I'd heard of Linklaters and uh, Allen and Avery, but I actually hadn't heard of Freshfields. So you know, I had to Google them to find out. Uh, you know, and realised that they were pretty significant law, law law firm. And as I talked to them, and I had a lot of interviews on my way into into Freshfields with lots of lots of partners. I got a sense that they really were up for trying to modernise their their people practices, and they recognised that they needed to be much better at, at um, people management, people development, talent management, all of that sort of stuff, and and also things like diversity and inclusion, which they hadn't you know, spent very much time uh, you know thinking uh, thinking about. It was a professional services firm, and I think that probably why I got the job was because they were looking for somebody who brought some external experience, but. He knew how a partnership worked, and so I think I was kind of a slightly safer bet. And and I, you know, it was unbelievably different to Capital One. But I really did enjoy my time at Freshfields again. I think that they it was hard work, you know, building the business case for all the changes that we wanted to make, things like diversity and inclusion, trying to demonstrate that what was going on in the organisation wasn't really a merit based system because I think a lot of partners at the time thought where you know it's a fair firm you know we promote on merit we, you know we, we take the best people and you know the, the best of the best emerge as, as as partners but I think you know over time we we're able to you know get them to think a little bit more deeply about the fact that you know there were a number of groups that weren't very well represented in the in the partnership why was that what was getting in there in the way for example of women coming through into into partnership and what could we do to stop the waste of that waste of talent. So I'd started doing some EDI work at, uh, at Capital One. The Americans were pretty progressive in that in that arena. And, and then really, it was one of the very first things that I got involved with at, um, at Freshfields in building the business case for it, um, the firm's first ever diversity and inclusion uh, strategy. And of course, that all, you know, go back to where we started the conversation, uh, Nikki, that you know, we know some of my personal values and that sort of sense of fairness you know, I thought what went on in organisations was very unfair in that, you know, there were many, many talented people who didn't get the opportunities that they should do, that there were barriers placed in uh, in the way of women, ethnic minorities and other represented groups that meant that they didn't progress uh, in a way in which their abilities actually warranted. And so I was very committed to trying to level the playing field so those talented people could come through. You know, I, I looked back on I looked back on my time at Freshfields with great pride about what we were able to accomplish during that um, uh, during that that time, and I think, you know, I could well have stayed at Freshfields for even even longer. Um, I often reflect on the fact that um, when you work in a professional partnership, your influence tends to grow over time because you build relationships and you build institutional knowledge, and people learn to trust you. And it takes a um, lot of time, doesn't it, in a professional? Yeah, yeah. it does. It takes it takes time. And, in a corporate, I think it's quite it's a little bit different. Often, your maximum influence in a corporate is immediately after you've joined. You're the new person. You know, people are expecting you to bring about change. You get in there. You have quite a lot of positional authority in a in a in a corporate. You know, as the chief people officer, HR director, whatever your title, there's quite a lot of positional authority, and there's much less positional authority in a in a professional services firm. So you have to work to to influence that. Influence grows over time. And so after eight years, you know, I felt as though I was you know, well respected, you know, had the ear of the partnership and uh, was influencing what was what was going on. 
when I got the opportunity to um, uh, to move to uh, Norton Rose Fulbright, I had again sort of this sort of theme of being thoughtful about my career. Yeah. I had always thought that there would be a final phase of my career where I would uh, go and do some consulting work and coaching work and things like that, and, and wanted to finish my career doing doing that. And so I reflected on the fact that I was probably going to equip myself much better if I went and worked in another law firm than just spend another four or five years working at Freshfields and doing more of the same at, uh, at Freshfields. I'm sure I would have continued to learn, but I wouldn't have learned as much as I did by going into a very different type of law firm that's operating in a different part of the marketplace. Uh, it's a Swiss Bahrain, so not a globally integrated firm like Freshfields. So very, very, very different. And I learned an awful lot uh, that you know I think is serving me well now doing what I'm doing. And I also, back in my time at Capital One, had started doing some unpaid non-exec work and joined the board of Nottingham Trent University and did several non-exec roles for Scope, the disabled charity. Again, thinking that this is experience that will serve me well if I want to go and do non-exec work in the future. So I thought that Norton Rose Fulbright was going to be my kind of final exec job and then I then I do the kind of the plural um, stuff and I was planning to do that. Peter Marta, who was a global chief executive uh, who I'd worked very closely with, uh, had announced that, that he, he would be serving a final term and would uh, retire in um, in uh, in twenty uh, twenty, and I thought that's probably a good time for me to uh, to step step away. But of course, COVID came along. Uh, yes, COVID. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, two things: one, I got very very busy because uh, it was an incredibly busy time uh, for everybody in HR dealing with COVID, and also. It just probably wasn't a very good time to go and try and set up my own own business as, as COVID hit. And very, very surprised to be approached about uh, the KPMG UK Chief People Officer role, and even more surprised than when I got offered it. And I thought, actually, that's a great job. A great job, fantastic firm. I'm going to refresh my knowledge of the big four by moving in to the KPMG role. It had been sort of 20 years or so since I've been at EY. And again, I was thinking, well, that will equip me with a different set of skills and knowledge um, for when I do uh, my plural stuff. And I joined, I joined during COVID. So, you know, I joined and um, I was there for about nine months or so before I met, you know, many of my, any of my colleagues. It was a, a, obviously a very, very challenging time for everybody in HR. And I, I remember talking to somebody and then telling me that the global financial crisis had been the CFO's crisis, you know, sort of helping organizations because financial services institutions uh, through the GFC the CFO was very much at the forefront of that but COVID was the chief people officers crisis it pushed the, the, the CPOs to the forefront they were often the spokes the spokespeople they were the leaders you know it was all about you know how we get the, the, the people in the organization how we keep them safe how we continue to run the business uh, with all the challenges that COVID presented and, you know, I think we saw during that crisis, the HR teams in, in all organisations really step up to the plate and contribute incredibly well to helping organisations through that crisis. That's we... That resonates so much, doesn't it? And you can see, I know that with our HR um, manager at the time, we were just looking at her saying, what happened? What, what do we happened? Do? What do we do? Absolutely. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, interestingly, professionally, it was very challenging, but interesting the time because yeah. it, you know there was no playbook you know there wasn't anything that you could go and say well this is this is the way you manage through a global uh, pandemic because we hadn't had to do it before and so you know it was a period of time where it really did 
HR teams had to be very responsive, you know, very, very flexible, uh, very agile in order to respond to changing the changing situation. I'm incredibly proud about how the whole of the HR profession responded to the challenge that that COVID uh, presented to uh, to organisations right across uh, not just the UK but right across the right across the uh, the world. As I got back into sort of uh, as COVID sort of started to subside, I started to think that some of the routine of uh, being a global chief people officer, uh, the UK chief people officer, that I wasn't getting the same enjoyment and satisfaction from it. It's only the second point in your career that you've not had that, which is interesting. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So yeah, and so it was an unusual experience for me to think I'm. I'm not enjoying this quite as much as uh, as I would like, and so my thoughts started to return to uh, a plural career, and I decided that I would take the step out uh, of you know, my take that step away from an executive role uh, and move into uh, a world where I would be doing some coaching. I'll be doing some non-executive work and doing some consulting and um, and advisory work. So you know that's what I've been working on building since I left uh, KPMG uh, last uh, September. And you're talking about that advisory space for you, which is something you've done continuously throughout your career. So it's not too much of a step to one side. It's just uh, for different, maybe a few different companies as opposed to, to one for. What is it that gives you your passion around that? What is it that drives you? I think it's the same as it was you know, being in-house in an HR role. It's around making a difference. It's around making organisations better, fairer, uh, places, ones where really they can make the most of the talent that they have within the organisation. So most of the work doing, and I, and I, I want to do, is really around talent, uh, around EDI, uh, leadership development, that sort of work. And so I, it, you're right, it, it's largely doing some of the work that I used to to do, but doing it for other organisations. I've had to get used to doing some things differently. I, I have to do business development uh, these days so i have to get out and win work from clients so that's a bit that is a bit different but it's for the purpose of and actually i wouldn't say that i don't particularly enjoy business development because i love talking to people i love i'm very curious about them and i'm very curious about their organizations and actually i think that's the key to great business development if you show great curiosity about people and about their organizations they tell you all sorts of stuff that yeah. gives you great insight into where you might actually be able to to help um, them yeah absolutely rather than going in with a predetermined idea about actually i'm going to go in and sort of sell myself as a edi expert they may need edi support but let's have a conversation around what's going on and see where it is that i can i can contribute so actually i've really i've really enjoyed that uh, getting out and talking to people about their businesses and, and learning about different different uh, uh, organizations so talking about EDI, because uh, I know it's something that, as you say, you started doing a lot more work around when you're at Capital One and were able to keep developing and morphing that. Well, how are you getting people? How did you get people to buy into that? You're in a partnership. It's more traditional in the way that they work. And as you say, they already felt they were in a in a metocracy, which, as you pointed mm. out, that wasn't necessarily mm. the case. How did you get people to buy in and how do you continue to do that? Well, I think there are, it's, um... At that point, I think it was a lot about the business case and about data. And so putting data in front of the partners that showed them you know, what happens, for example, to the you know, for, uh, the women that join the organisation, 
you know, a 50-50 ratio on training contracts and entry level into the organization. And let's look at what's happened to them after five years into their career, where, you know, where, where have they all gone, you know, what's happened and showing them data about how that you know, the attrition um, through the career stage in the organization. Some qualitative data, so not just quantitative data, but qualitative data. So focus groups with women, you know, talking about their experience of, of the firm, which I think was quite sobering um, for, for many of my leadership colleagues, uh, hearing a firm that they loved, that they were passionate about, that they, they thought, you know, this is a, you know, one of the preeminent law firms in the world. And then to hear the stories about the experience that um, some women were having in the firm. You know, some of it was behaviour was on a spectrum from behaviour that really was very, very poor behaviour to some which today we describe as unconscious bias, microaggressions and things and things like that, but nonetheless still had an impact on, on women and how they felt about the firm and how inclusive the firm was and whether it was a place that they felt that they could be successful and develop their careers. And so at that point, it was a many of the women in the firm felt that we should be making the case just on what it's the right thing to do. And if you look at the values of the organization, then this is something that we should just be accepting is, uh, is um, uh, you know, an issue of, of, of gender equality. I did focus mainly on the business case. Now, I actually think that in the work that I and others do in the EDI space, uh, there's room for both. And I've learned that, of course, there are different leaders, there are different levers, uh, and some are actually persuaded uh, by the sort of moral, social case of creating a fairer world, a fairer society, creating opportunities for underrepresented groups about the alignment to the organization's uh, values. There are leaders that are you know, fully behind that, and that is their motivation for what they want to do. And there's other leaders where it's, well, you know, show me how this is going to benefit us fin- 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 financially. Yeah. And of course, yeah. I and others who you know, operate in the EDI field are, are quite fortunate now. There's so much research that demonstrates the commercial impact that you know, more diverse and inclusive organizations, uh, the better business results that they enjoy quite hard when you sort of order all of that evidence uh, for for people to stand in the to stand in the way so principally through sort of working hard on the on the business case looking at the data qualitative and quantitative to put in front of the uh, partners to persuade them that we need to do something and I know that you did set up allyship groups as well, which is so important, isn't it? Because, again, you know, you're looking at things through a lens and you're obviously looking at it through a lens from coming from a really positive place. But unless you're actually in that situation, living and breathing, it's not always as easy to understand. Well, there's, I mean, there's a, people contribute in so many different ways. And I think the role of allies is very important. I think that, you know, as a white uh, man, trying to understand more about the experience of, of my female colleagues and understanding more about the experience of colleagues who come from you know, ethnic minority background. And then I need to stand side by side um, uh, with them and argue the case for uh, the case for change. And, you know, uh, the, the system that we operate in organisations has been designed predominantly by white men uh, and it favours white men. And actually it's up to white men largely to change that system, to recognise the privilege that they have and to accept that that needs to change, that they need to move to a position where they won't enjoy the privilege that they've had in the past. But that is what it means to create a truly diverse and inclusive organisation where you know people from all backgrounds with their talents can uh, can actually flourish. 
and that the majority group doesn't create an environment where it perpetuates the conditions for the success of the majority group. Yeah, I think it's interesting when you and I have spoken before when we talked about uh, Evie and I and in your role in a global capacity as well. You know, the challenges that different cultures, different countries mm. face, it's so different. And again, you, know, you being able to pull all that together is, is challenging itself, isn't it? The global piece is really hard because gender sort of transcends boundaries. But when you start to talk about issues of race, ethnicity, culture, what that means in the UK is very different to what it means in France, to what it means in Germany, to what it means in Australia or Canada or the United States. And so having to work with within you know, an understanding the, 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 that national context is really very important because it, that, that piece is, is, is different. But that fundamental principle of this is about fairness. Well, that doesn't change because if you look at the challenges of Indigenous people in Australia, First Nations uh, people in Canada, well, it's about fairness. Yeah. If you look at some of the issues that LGBT plus colleagues face in some parts of the world, well, it's about fairness. And so to me, that's been the central tenet of, of the work that I've done in the EDI space is this is about creating a fairer fairer organisations and, and by creating fairer organisations that will have an influence on the society in which we in which we live. So mum and dad Hogarth did well instilling that fairness into you at a young age. <laughs> well my parents I'm very grateful to my parents um, but only, only my dad left around these these days but they gave me a really really I think good upbringing very, as, I, as I said earlier very happy childhood and I think that they they instilled some decent values into me that's certainly what I tried to do with my kids and um but I'm uh, just feel very fortunate to have had a career where I've been in a position to be able to influence things in a way that I hope I've left places when I arrived and interesting question I'd like to ask you is about networking as well because you know it's something I would imagine you've had to do throughout your career is build this network and really utilize it. And is that something that you've been very conscious about, or has that happened as you've evolved as well and your career's evolved? Uh, I think I actually, again, I've been very conscious of, of building a network, of wanting to have keep in touch with I think it started out really as wanting to keep in touch with people who I liked or I used to work with. I right. didn't really think about it as networking, but uh, so I'd always keep in touch with them and you know they'd obviously go off in different directions of their in their career and it was you know nice to catch up with them and find out what they what they were what they were doing. And again, you know, as I said earlier, I'm I'm a, I'm a naturally curious person. I you know and so I was always keen when people wanted to meet with me, I thought, oh, it would be, be interesting to chat to them and you know, find out what they're doing, what their organisation uh, uh, does. And I think it was probably at EY where I started to think about networking, you know, this, this concept of networking. And I heard the partners talk a lot about it in the context of business development, you know, the need to build their network for business development purposes. But I recognised that actually you know, it applied equally to you know, the type of work that, that, that I was doing and the ability to be able to tap into the expertise of people outside of the organisation to ask them for advice and insights and you know referrals to other people who knew about particular topics that I was uh, I was uh, interested uh, in, and also I, uh, quite shamelessly I also was thinking about 
when I get to this stage of my career and that it would be my network that would help sustain a, um, an advisory and consulting and coaching mentoring uh, career and so that you know I've always I've all, have always invested uh, time uh, in that now you know, it's become a lot easier with the advent of things like LinkedIn and, and such like to keep in to keep in touch uh, with people but I do also think that I am now reaping the benefits of probably being quite generous with my time with people yeah. when they've asked for my advice and my help that I have I've found people incredibly generous in accepting lunch meetings with me coffee meetings as when I wanted to pick their brains yeah. about you know, how do you do this plural stuff and who else should I go to go and talk to people have been so kind so generous but I think there is again a little bit of if you do that during your career for other people you do get repaid um, in kind later on in your career. I do think it's investing in your network and as you say it's quite easy to have a LinkedIn network with you know thousands of people on it but do you actually have a relationship with those people and that's the indeed, difference. indeed. Really good, right? yeah yeah so what, what would you class as being your challenges throughout your career Kevin because you've spoken about lots today yes well certainly the I've talked about some of the things that I where I've had you know points in my career where I found it difficult and they were both occasions where I, where I changed organizations or, or got a got a got a bigger job and they have been challenges in getting to a position where I felt you know I was contributing to the level that I uh, wanted to but undoubtedly the whole you know for the last 10-15 years this whole area of EDI has been a constant theme and a constant challenge and and, and you know uh, been hard work to to make the progress I think the progress that uh, we've achieved over the last 10 or 15 years has been hard really hard one that has been a challenge it's always a challenge when you have a dysfunctional leadership team and I have you know worked with dysfunctional leadership teams where there are personal relationships that aren't very very good or there are differences of views about the way the organization ought to be going and that makes it very hard and I think particularly in the type of role that you people officers perform if you haven't got a leadership team that is fully aligned so that that's always been challenging when that's been the case and then I would also say that actually probably what we touched on earlier COVID was probably the most challenging um, yeah. and it came quite late in my career but I can't think of anything that has challenged me more than trying to help you know it was two organizations because I started COVID in, in Norton Rose Fulbright and uh, you know right at the very start we had to cancel a global partners conference when we were already in you know a group of us were already in Austin in Texas you know 48 hours away uh, from the conference commencing you know making a decision on a Monday evening uh, to get on the phones and ring around and try and get a few of the partners on to go on to the planes that they were scheduled to step onto in the next 24 hours to cancel that thing that was really the, really the the start of it I flew back from Austin and didn't step on a plane again for uh, for 18 months and then moved to KPMG during COVID. That's a, no precedence, you know, nobody there to help you with, you know, this is the way that we, that we tackled it. Yeah, absolutely. So pretty high stakes. As you're talking about keeping people safe and secure, huge mental health challenges for, yeah. for people during that during that period. So that is probably the, the, the most challenging period of my career. And obviously it's, you know, it's relatively recent. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's, it's interesting. I know you and I have talked about the challenging times, but how much you've learned during those periods of times. And that's a really 
positive way of thinking about what are the challenges mm. teaching mm. you and instead mm. of helping them to let them destroy you which is not what anybody wants to do is it well no yeah i mean you, you obviously have to be resilient uh, and very few careers like on a, you know are going to be sort of gilded careers where you move through without any difficulties at all so Often, I think it is that the periods that when it's hardest that you're learning most. You're learning most about yourself, uh, learning most about the, your skill, your your skill set, and what you're what you're doing. Yeah, and being reflective and 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 looking back and thinking, what did I learn from that? What would I do? What would I do differently uh, if I was faced with that again? It's really really important. Embrace those those, those periods when it's been been difficult and it's been challenging. And your highlights. What would you class as being your highlights? Well, I've, I've talked about some of the organisations, you know, probably Capital One is a highlight in terms of the quality of the HR work that I did, the, the, the people, the culture. Uh, I probably enjoyed that job more than any other job that I've done. So that is an, undoubtedly a highlight. Yeah. Uh, the, the people that I've worked with, I've worked with just some amazingly talented people and particularly those that I've been able to help with their careers and seeing them going on and and and, uh, and flourishing and then probably the um the, the contribution that i've made in the edi uh, space uh, would be the other one and the progress that we've made an enormous amount still still to do in that arena but if we think back to where we were 10 or 15 years ago the world is a is a different place and there's a, a, a different dialogue very different expectations of organizations and, uh, and leadership teams now uh, than there was when we first started talking about this as a as a business critical topic. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, to think that the strides have been made, which is fantastic. But as you say, there's still a lot to go, still a long way to go. And words of wisdom, Kevin in Whitley Bay growing up, to Kevin moving to Nottingham and having that connection to Nottingham still, what words of wisdom would you give? I would, I'd say, certainly early on in, in, in a career, try to do some different things experiment you know i experimented by moving into different sectors and doing different things because i was lucky in finding a career that i was i was enjoying but if you're doing something that you're not enjoying change it life's far too short and there are many other opportunities and other things that you'll find try and find something that you enjoy that you can be passionate about it it saddens me so much when i think about you know the number of people who go to work every day and don't really enjoy what they do and that's been such a contrast to my experience so do you try different things and my advice to hr people actually and not all of them like to hear this is i will often say don't start in hr go and get some other experience get, uh, particularly if you can get some customer facing uh, experience so you know what life is like at the sharp end of an of an organization or step out of hr during your career and go and do that that's probably the one regret that i have during my career is i would like to have taken a step out into a line management role and managed in the business close to the customers and that didn't happen but i think that's great experience because hr people need to be commercial hr uh, people they need to understand the business in the same way as everybody else does and be able to talk their, the language of everybody else in the in the business and that's one of the ways in which you can one of the ways in which you can uh, can can do that uh, and then the other thing is you know do spend time Thinking, reflecting, thinking about the experiences that you've uh, that you've got, and find people who will help you. You know, we've talked about the sort of people who've helped me along in my career. I would never say that I had a formal mentor, that I you know some one person, but I've just had so many people who have helped me along in my in my career. So, you know, try and find those people who are going to help you in your career. 
Well, great advice and words of wisdom to end on there, Kevin, today. So I have to thank you so much for your time. I found the conversation really interesting and it's been great to talk to you today. Thank you. Nikki, thank you so much. Thanks for the invitation to uh, to talk through those, uh, those, those things. I really appreciate it. Pleasure.